All right, welcome to a listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. My name is John Whitaker. I'm super glad to have you here on this commentary. The listener's commentary was created out of a desire to help whoever really wants to understand the Bible, really understand it, to provide Bible teaching in the context of everyday life and the language of everyday life so that you could follow Jesus in your everyday life. And this commentary is made possible 100% by the generosity of God's people. And so if you're one of those who support the listener's commentary, thanks a ton. If you've been helped by the listener's commentary, would you consider becoming a ministry partner with us by supporting this work at listenerscommentary.com slash give, listenerscommentary.com slash give. I'll put a link to that down in the notes below. All right, in this session, we are looking at the last major snapshot from the life of Jesus before he enters into ministry. And so we said that first big chunk of the Gospel of Luke is really just preparations for ministry. It's the story begins. And we had Jesus' birth, we've had his baptism, and now we get one last little snapshot here from the life of Jesus that's sort of like the transition piece. It it wraps up effectively the beginnings elements of the story and transitions effectively to the launching of Jesus' ministry. And so in this session, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It is the well-known temptation of Jesus section. And before we look at the details, let's make sure we set that in its context, not just its immediate context in Luke, but even in its whole biblical theological context. And the way Luke tells the story, Jesus is baptized. Coming out of his baptism, he is being led about by the Spirit in the wilderness or the desert, being tested or tempted by the devil. And the theological context of that is the broader story of Israel. Just as Israel went through the water and into the wilderness to be tested by God in the days of the Exodus, you can read the story, right, in the story of Exodus in the Old Testament. So just as Israel experienced that, so now Jesus goes through the water in his baptism and then into the wilderness to be tested. Just as Israel, God's son, again, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 through 33, Israel's God's son. So just as Israel, God's son, was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, so Jesus uh, is tested in the wilderness for 40 days. And Jesus seems to be somewhat conscious of this parallel. The reason I say that is because when the devil comes to tempt Jesus here in this snapshot— in order to deal with the temptation and rebuff the devil, Jesus quotes passages, not at random, not from anywhere in the Bible. Jesus quotes passages from Israel's wilderness testing and failure found in the book of Deuteronomy. And so he seems to be somewhat conscious of the fact that he is actually carrying out and embodying and calling forward what Israel failed to do successfully in its testing in the wilderness, Jesus now is living that out himself. And so as the Messiah, God's son, he is the embodiment of Israel and everything they were supposed to be. And the point is that where Israel uh, failed the test in the wilderness, Jesus is faithful to God's testing of him in the wilderness. And 
I think we can even broaden the theological context out further, not just with the story of Israel, although that's certainly central here, but we can broaden the theological context out all the way to the broader story of humanity and the story of Adam in the garden found in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Jesus being identified as the descendant of Adam, the son of God in the genealogy, right? And so Jesus is the son of God, just like Adam was the son of God. And the temptation of Adam and Eve is the only other account in the Bible where a human comes face to face with Satan, the tempter. And whereas Adam failed, again, his test of obedience, Jesus, God's greater and ultimate son, prevails in his test of obedience. And so what we see here in this snapshot is we see Jesus, the Messiah, living out steadfast obedience to the Father's will as the representative of all humanity and as the embodiment of Israel. So let's begin and walk down through some of the details here and look at what happens with that theological context in mind. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 reads, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, and we already noted how the Spirit is so central to Luke's presentation of Jesus as he carries out his vocation. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And when Luke says the wilderness, you got to picture really most likely the vast Judean wilderness or Judean desert to the east of Jerusalem uh, near the Jordan River. That's probably where this scene is should be pictured as taking place. It's in that Judean wilderness. So if you just Google some pictures of the Judean wilderness, Judean desert, you'll see kind of these barren hills uh, out towards the Dead Sea, out towards the Jordan River between Jerusalem and there. That's where the scene seems to take place. And two notes on that. First is this. Jesus leaves all the crowds, leaves all the activity to be by himself. So as he goes into the wilderness, he will be alone with God for 40 days, a month and a half. That's significant. And closely related to that, the other thing to note is this is presented as Jesus beginning his ministry. So when Jesus wants to begin his ministry, he began his ministry by going away for a month and a half, being alone in prayer and fasting with God. We should note that that's important. Uh, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we imitate his total pattern of life, not just the parts of his life we like, or not even the public parts of his life, but even these sort of behind-the-scenes parts of his life. And so Jesus is alone in the desert for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And we must recall the devil is the arch enemy of God, the one who opposes God's purposes and tests God's faithful people. And so Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted or tested. The word temptation or tempt uh, is a word that basically just means test and sometimes refers to an external trial type test, like you're suffering some sort of difficulty, hardship, trial. The word is used for that. And the word is also used for a temptation test where you're being uh, tested in your loyalty to God. And so here we have more of that temptation test where Jesus' loyalty and faithfulness to Yahweh is being tested 
through the devil's temptations. During these 40 days, Luke says at the second half of verse 2, Jesus ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Yes, of course, right? Like, because Jesus is 100% human as well as 100% God, he gets hungry. If you don't eat for 40 days, you get hungry. I have known people who've actually fasted for 40 days, and hunger goes along with it. And so at the end of this 40-day period of fasting, Luke tells us Jesus is hungry, and at that moment, the devil begins to try to seize upon his hunger as an opportunity to uh, break his loyalty and faithfulness to God. So verse 3, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And so the devil takes the opportunity of Jesus' physical hunger to say, use your divine identity and calling and power for self-serving purposes. Use your status and your authority to satisfy yourself. That's really at the heart of this temptation. And notice that the devil says, if you are, we need to make sure we understand uh, that phrase the way it's actually written. In English, we only have one word for if, if. But in the Greek language, there was two different words for if. And one had more the sense of if you are, and I'm not sure whether that's the case, and another, particularly in certain constructions, had the sense of if you are and assumes it's true. If you are, more the idea of since you are. That's the construction we have here. The devil's actually not doubting uh, Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He's actually calling upon Jesus' identity of the Son of God and calling him to use it for his own self-serving, uh, self-satisfying ends. And so he says, since you're the Son of God, there's no need for you to go hungry. You have the power to solve this. Why not just a little bread? Uh, this is what the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 calls the lust of the flesh. To uh, the the appetites, the desires of our fleshly to serve those or to satisfy those in our own sort of way, our own sort of power. And so the devil is really appealing to Jesus' status and authority uh, to satisfy himself. How does Jesus respond? Well, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to him, it is written. That's a standard phrase for quoting scripture, calling to mind scripture. So it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And so Jesus replies to the devil's deception with the truth of Scripture. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which is, again, as we noted in the introduction, is the context of Israel's wandering in the wilderness as they are being tested in their loyalty and their faithfulness to God. And God had provided manna for them that, that wouldn't wear out, and it's a way of teaching them that you can depend on the very promises, the very words of God. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Bread here represents physical sustenance, meeting physical needs. And so human beings need more than bread to actually have genuine life. Man doesn't get life just by taking care of the body. There's more to life than just food and physical and meeting physical needs. That's the point of the passage. In fact, when you read it in its whole context, which whenever you come across an Old Testament passage in the New Testament, you should do that. Go back and read it. Um, the second half of the verse is, 
Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so there is a uh, a spiritual reality, a uh, a divine connection need that humans must get satisfied in order to have genuine full life. Jesus, knowing that, quotes this, this passage to rebuff the devil, to remind himself of the truth, and to combat the devil's deceptions and the devil's lies. Well, the devil doesn't give up, and so Luke records what the devil does next. He led him up, verse 5, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. In some sort of way, the devil gave Jesus a glimpse of the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. The temptation here really is for Jesus uh, to seize glory and power, to bypass suffering and go straight to ruling the world. The devil shows him what glory and power look like. Again, what first, uh, what John says in 1 John chapter 2 is the lust of the eyes. And so the devil shows him what glory and power look like. It says it can, it can all be yours. And the devil tries to cut a deal with him. The, the deal is this. Worship the devil and Jesus can have glory and power. And there's a subtle half-truth in the devil's temptation here. In one sense, the devil really is the ruler of this world. It has been handed over to him. He is, in fact, in John's gospel, he's called the ruler of this world. And so in one sense, the devil is the ruler of this world. But he's not the ultimate ruler of this world. And he doesn't have the power to give it to whomever he wishes, as he claims here. And so the subtle half-truth, it's been handed to me, I give it to whoever I wish. Not true. Not true. He doesn't have that ultimate authority to give it to every wishes. So there's this, this subtle half-truth, and often that's the way temptation works. The devil uses misrepresentations and half-truths in order to confuse us and to get us to give in. And the devil is doing that very much here by tempting Jesus with glory and power. And so he tries to get Jesus to want power and glory. And what the devil is really offering is a shabby substitute for the everlasting kingdom of God. You can have these little kingdoms of the world if you'll worship me. Again, how does Jesus respond? Well, verse 8, Jesus answered him and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus once again responds to the devil's uh, deceptions and half-truths with scripture to combat the lies. And once again, Jesus quotes from Israel's wilderness experience, this time in Deuteronomy 6.13. The context there in Deuteronomy 6 is a warning. Israel is about to enter into the promised land that God is giving to them. And the warning is, when you enter into the promised land, and you settle down, and you build houses, and life goes well for you, and you have plenty of grain and plenty of food, right? You're, everything is going well, and you feel established and well-satisfied and well-provided for and well-taken care of, and you have all the good things, all the things. When you have all that, um, it would be really, really easy for you to become proud and to forget God and to forget that God gave it all to you and to go after worshiping other gods. Don't do that. 
Don't do that. Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. That's the context here of this passage that Jesus quotes. And so Jesus is really very much in that same situation with this temptation. He recognizes to the, that the devil is tempting him with this idea of you can have everything. You can have it all. You can have all the things that go with glory and power if you'll just worship me. And Jesus is like, nope, nope. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That is the truth. I'm not falling for your tricks. Well, once again, the devil's not done. And so this time he uh, takes him to Jerusalem, verse 9, and he led him to Jerusalem. Don't know whether that's in vision or literally. I kind of assume literally because of the way this unfolds. But however it plays out, here's the temptation. He, he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Most uh, experts suggest we're talking about a particular a section of the temple that was high above the Kidron Valley. So it was like a, a deep drop from the corner of the temple down into the valley floor below and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard over you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so this time the devil tempts Jesus to make uh, basically, Jesus, make God prove that he cares for you and that he will care for you. And again, notice, if you are the Son of God, that's the same sense of since you're the Son of God. So since you're the very Son of God, surely God will protect you. Surely God will let no harm come to you, right? And so the devil is tempting Jesus to say, look, since you're God's very own Son, just just make sure he's actually going to protect you and make sure no harm comes to you. In fact, the devil even quotes a psalm in an attempt to bolster his temptation in an attempt to confuse Jesus. He quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And the, the thrust of that quoting that is really, look, if God promised to protect David, how much more will he protect you since you're David's greater son, the Messiah? And Jesus answered and said to him, verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And once again, Jesus quotes scripture, again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Israel's uh, wilderness wandering, this time Deuteronomy 6, 16. And Jesus seems to really understand the heart of the devil's temptation is testing God. Like, it's, it's not really about whether or not God loves him and whether or not God will care for him. It's about testing God. Will you trust God or are you going to test God. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 and says, you know what? I No, I will trust God. Um, will God keep his word? Will God be faithful to his son? Jesus refuses to distrust God's goodness and God's faithfulness. He refuses to make God prove himself and prove his care for Jesus. And so quote scripture and says, I will not quote, I will not put God to the test. And with that, the devil has been defeated, at least for the time being. And so verse 13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, these three presumably, maybe more that aren't recorded, when he had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time, until the time was right to try again. The time was right to try to see if he couldn't subvert Jesus' faithfulness and loyalty to God again. But here... At the outset of his ministry, Jesus has proven faithful to God and has succeeded 
where humanity in the person of Adam failed and where Israel in the wilderness failed, Jesus has obeyed and been faithful to the test and the temptations of the devil. Now, as we just kind of wind down this section, just some reflections for us to think about. There's really quite a bit here for us to reflect on and think about. One simple little reflection just about Jesus himself is the humanity of Jesus. Uh, that Jesus, uh, yes, was God in the flesh, but he was God as a human being. And so, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. That is, he lowered himself and he took on the form of a human being, even a human being who acted as a servant and suffered the ultimate disgrace in the form of uh, death by crucifixion. He was 100% human. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brother so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to, be, to God, to make propitiation, that is atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Notice there in Hebrews chapter 2 that he had to be made like his brethren in every way, in all respects, including in this respect of temptation. Jesus' temptations are not a sham. It's not as if this was make-believe. Jesus had the capacity to fail as a human being, and yet he didn't. And that's the point. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus and his temptations is an experience of his humanity, and it's an experience where in his humanity he proved faithful to God by passing the tests. Another reflection for us to think about out of this section is just the idea of temptation and the devil, that we have to take the reality of the devil seriously if we're going to have a biblical worldview. That doesn't mean we have to take the picture of the devil as a red creature with horns and a, a pointy tail holding a pitchfork. That's a fabrication. That's a caricature. That's a sham. That's actually not taking the devil seriously. I'm talking about taking the reality of the devil seriously, that there is an arch enemy of God. There is a powerful spiritual being who opposes God, who opposes the work of God, and thus who assaults and attacks God's people, and who does so through his various minions and agencies. Uh, that there, there are real evil forces arrayed against God and his purposes and his people. And we have to learn his strategies, and we see examples of them here. Those strategies are uh, described, as I noted in the commentary uh, in 1 John chapter 2, as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. And you really see those three things being played out here. Uh, you see the way the devil uh, tempts Adam and Eve in the Genesis 3 account, and we can learn some of his strategies there. The, the devil is clever, he's crafty, he's tricky, and he, he's not just going to you know come through the front door and say, hey, I'm the devil, you should do wrong. So we, if we're going to be faithful, need to take the devil's uh, 
existence seriously, and we need to learn the strategies of his attacks so that we can resist them. And what we see in the example of Jesus is terribly important to us that as disciples of Jesus, we learn from Jesus how to deal with the devil and temptation, and that means the Word of God. We must fill ourselves with it. We must meditate upon it. We must uh, let the story of Scripture saturate the story of our lives. Here's Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Here's Jesus in the wilderness having fasted for 40 days. Uh, he, he's alone. They didn't have little backpacker Bibles back in Jesus' day. They had huge scrolls in the synagogue. But Jesus is quoting Scripture at will. Why? Because he's saturated with it. And he's not quoting it at will randomly. He's quoting it really intentionally from an understanding of his vocation as caring for the story of Israel and where Israel failed in the world. So he's been meditating on the story and meditating on the book of Deuteronomy during these 40 days. He's been meditating on the truth of God. It's in his heart. It's in his mind. He's full of it. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus and I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to imitate him. That uh, discipleship entails imitation. And, and Jesus clearly has memorize the Word of God, and is full of it, and thus we should do the same. And so the devil's strategies here in this case are derailed by Jesus' humble faith and staunch allegiance to God, as David Garland says, that's embodied in not just this moment of crisis and temptation, that's embodied in his preparation by filling his mind, heart, soul, life with Scripture and with the story of Scripture. And we should do the same. If we want to be successful and faithful to God as Jesus was faithful to God, one of the most important things we can do is saturate our life with Scripture.